Would you all pray with me, please? Dear God, we ask that you be with us today, that you be here in this moment as we wrestle and struggle with a text that leaves us questioning and concerned. We pray that we may be able to open our ears and our hearts to a message coming through these words. And we pray that we be, we be able to find them useful. In your name, amen. Now I am very aware that this passage ends on a somber note. It is not a typical God-loving passage. Um, and I, I want to give just a little bit of, of background. So this is taken from the book of Judges, which is about the judges of Israel after the people have entered the Promised Land. So this is post-Moses. And it is a time of conflict, of war, of many deaths and a lot of violence. Now, Deborah, the only female judge of Israel, has just led a counterattack on the Canaanite army that is coming to, to take over Israel, to conquer the land. And in doing so, she has destroyed this army. And their commander, Sisera, has fled. And he has fled to his known ally, Heber, who is a Kenite. And Heber is married to Ya'el, or Ja'el, sometimes. And Ya'el is an Israelite. Now, fully recognizing the violent nature of this text, I want to set that aside for a little bit. We'll come back to it. Instead, let's talk about the Super Bowl. So whether you watched it live or YouTubed it later or simply through, have discovered about it through websites like BuzzFeed, breaking it down for the entire internet to uh, experience, you've probably heard about Katy Perry's halftime performance. Now initially, most of the attention was on her animatronic lion that she rode in, and then it was her guest performances by Lenny Kravitz and Missy Elliott, and there was certainly a lot of attention about her eccentric set designs. But then, then came the most glorious creation that I think the internet has ever blown ridiculously out of portion, and that is Left Shark. Now, for those of you who may not know who Left Shark is or have any idea what I'm talking about, Katie's set included beach-themed costumes, including two giant plush-sized, human-sized sharks with legs that danced as Katie's background. Now, that certainly got enough media attention, but then one of the sharks, the left shark, seemingly forgot its choreography. So its fins were moving uncoordinatedly, and the internet was set on fire. Now, some people attest that Left Shark intentionally went rogue during its 15 seconds of fame, while others contend that Left Shark was, um, 
just having a glorious moment of trying to cover up a very apparent fail. Either way, a sensation was born. Besides the fact that these sharks looked like a life-size version of a rather pathetic prize you would win at a pop-up carnival, Left Shark has become regarded as a hero for its individuality, its perseverance, its tenacity to continue on while not doing the intended dance moves. Amidst my rapid onset adoration for Left Shark with apparently the rest of the internet, I thought how it was so great that people were responding positively to someone being different, intentionally or not, and to not making fun or, or belittling, but actually praising them for their uniqueness. I know, leave it up to a div school person to find a metaphor for acceptance in giant dancing sharks. But I think it's true. We frequently tend to push away that which we are unfamiliar with, that which goes against the grain, that which we don't understand, or that which doesn't fit into what we think somebody ought to be. I think when we do understand what things are, what they mean, naturally those things then can't change. It seems to me that we do this for a few reasons. Firstly, I have found that humans hate not knowing. We just hate when we don't know what's going on. It's so hard for us to sit with the unknown or the uncomfortable. It's extremely hard to sit with that which we don't grasp. Therefore, in order for humans to avoid this problem, we frequently boil things down to their smallest meaning or their smallest understanding. We take a complex concept like thermodynamics and we boil it down to heat distribution. It's rooted in practicality and convenience, which is understandable. But when the limited interpretation becomes all that we can see, well, then we've lost the importance of complexity. Now, follow me here. My roommate's sister's boyfriend actually studies thermodynamics. And my roommate frequently goads him by saying something like, oh, it's really hot out there today. Man, thermodynamics. <laughs> Doesn't quite work that way. So clearly, summarizing things in succinct ways can be useful to some degree, but not when the equally important complexities are forgotten or disregarded. It's necessary that we try to see the larger picture and everything that goes along with it. All too often, people get boiled down into stereotypes, or people are told that the ways in which they choose to express themselves are wrong because it veers from what is traditional or what is expected. Frequently, this happens with women. When they are put into the narrow purview of being only caregivers, nurturers, hostesses, soft, motherly figures, but let's not forget that women are humans who react and also interact with states of fear, hate, violence, aggression, protectiveness, just as men do. After all, the term mama bear ain't for nothing. Women have a need and a right 
to be fierce, to be allowed the flexibility to show the full range of their emotion and capabilities. Men and all others on the gender spectrum deserve this exact same thing. Today's passage is a hard one to swallow. It's filled with war, with violence, with death, with deceit, and I think it's really easy for us to question if Gael needed to do what she did. I know I certainly did at first. I questioned whether she needed to offer false security and, and even provide Cicero with the well-understood act of hospitality of giving him milk. I think it's easy and I think it's normal to ask, shouldn't she have simply let him go to sleep and, and ran out to find somebody else to, to inform the Israeli army of his location? Couldn't she have just tied him up and, so that way he couldn't have run away? Wouldn't it have been easier to simply leave the dealings of Sisera up to somebody else, at least for the sake of her own conscience? There doesn't seem to be any hesitation presented in the story on Yael's behalf. I tried imagining what that moment would be like for her, placing myself in her shoes. And I found myself wondering, I wonder if Yael waffled at all in her decision. I wonder if she paced back and forth in her tent trying to decide what to do, watching the man, the most feared man in the Canaanite army, taking aid in her presence. I wonder if she started analyzing the situation from as many angles as she possibly could, looking for the best scenario and the best outcome, keeping in mind the past crimes, the current state, of the defenseless and sleeping man and the future of her and her people. I wonder if she questioned if it was her place to be thinking about making such a decision at all or if somebody else, somebody surely more skilled in strategy than her should be making this decision. On the other hand, I can imagine her thinking about how this is a time of war how she has a chance to help and to make a difference now for her people, how she could save so many lives by taking this one life. Something that I think too frequently our veterans know all too well. Or perhaps she feared what kind of death she knew would be in store for this man should the Israeli army capture him, and that seemed likely. So maybe she tried to do the quickest and most painless option available. In the blink of an eye, I envision all of these thoughts swirling around in her head, each one fighting for contention, each one screaming louder than the next in order to be heard. Now the Bible doesn't use this language, but I wonder if Yael felt called and if she struggled with that call. I don't know. But whether or not Gail wrestled with her choices, she ultimately decided to take the life of Sisera. 
It's no wonder that Yale's story isn't heard very frequently. It's challenging and it's demanding and it is question provoking. It is scary territory. But apart from its troubling content, I think there's an extremely important message that is permeating through. At least it is for me. See, Yale has the option to not participate in the events that are governing her life, that are influencing her future, that are consuming the lives of her people. She can choose to let somebody else get their hands dirty. She can continue her role as provider of shelter, deliverer from war, giver of hospitality. She already has proven to be very accommodating in those roles as the scripture reads. Yet, she chooses to inhabit another quality. One that is infrequently seen in women during this age, she becomes a warrior. She expresses a part of herself that is ordinarily not seen, or perhaps outside of the context of this stressful situation that she finds herself in, doesn't even exist. But the thing is, the extraordinary thing is, she does not stifle it. She chooses to occupy this space of being fierce, of allowing herself to do something that exists outside of her typical habits and tendencies, probably even comfort zones. I can't help but think if Yael were a man, if we would have less issue with this story, if it would be less unsettling. Surely we would still find the murder of a defenseless sleeping man to be very problematic, but I question if our concerns would go much beyond that. Because I think we are desensitized to men killing. We're desensitized to men expressing themselves in a more violent manner. We tend to accept men fulfilling this role and women are supposed to fill the more docile counterpart role. And we do this frequently without question. But in doing so, we strip away the room for women and men to occupy different spaces, to express themselves in ways that go against traditional boundaries. We limit their identities based off of one stereotype, not allowing the vast complexities of human nature to have freedom, or at the very least, to manifest themselves when it seems imperative, as it does with Yael's case. Now to this point, there is an incredible story that has been circulating around the internet about Paul Nicklin, who is a contributing photographer for National Geographic. On a particular assignment in Antarctica, Nicklin was to photograph leopard seals in their natural environment. Now, if you know anything about leopard seals, or if you've seen Happy Feet, then you know how truly vicious of predators these creatures can be. So while on this assignment, Nicklin found himself face to face with a leopard seal. It had dropped the penguin that it had just caught and swam right over to him with its jaws spread wider than that of a grizzly bear's. And it encompassed 
the camera and Nicklin's head and did some threat displays. Now Nicklin said, I thought I was dead right then and there. This is it. But then something incredible happened. This leopard seal, realizing Nicklin was no threat, backed off and changed her, yes, her, behavior. She immediately perceived Nicklin to be a lost and lonely creature. She brought him a penguin so he could feed. And, of course, of being the non-penguin-eating variety, Nicklin politely declined this gesture as he allowed this, uh, the penguin to escape once the seal released it from its mouth. And this really seemed to trouble her. So she brought him back lame penguins, so that way they would be easier for him to catch. And when this didn't work, she brought him dead penguins. And when he still refused to eat, she started beginning to tear the penguins apart and trying to feed them to the camera, which she assumed was his mouth. <laughs> so, Nicklin reports that she tried to feed him, to nurture him, to take care of him for multiple days. Now, female species do tend to have a more motherly instinct due to biology, but this seal gets it. She has to kill in order to survive and clearly doesn't think twice about being an aggressor towards a perceived threat. And because she is a wild animal and not a human living in a societal construct, she has no contention between those two elements of her expression. She's a leopard seal. She's a predator a skilled killer, an aggressor, a caregiver, a nurturer, a provider, and most hospitable, all at the same time. And nonetheless, for a creature who can offer her nothing. I think I should write to Nicklin and uh, suggest that he start referring to the seal as Yael. Now, just to be perfectly clear, I am in no way advocating violence as a form of self-expression. I am ardently opposed to violence, except in exceptional cases of self-defense. And obviously, we are not leopard seals. We don't need to kill on our own behalf for survival, and most of us probably aren't in the business of food production, butchering, farming, or any other area where slaughter is a necessity. But we can still learn from Yael, the leopard seal, and Yael, the Kenite. We can learn that full expression of who we are is not to be avoided or disregarded or discouraged because it is a vital part of who we are and it is a vital part of answering God's call. See, I believe that a call requires the full self. It is not something that can be done half-heartedly and it is not something that is easy it is a constant attempt and striving to do God's will better and to act accordingly to the ways of Jesus more closely. With Lent just around the corner, this is exactly what we try to do as we give up something that can distance us from God. Answering the call of being a Christian is for the full self, not just the best self. And sometimes, 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 
being a good Christian brings to the forefront the parts of ourselves that might be scary or uncomfortable or untraditional or looked down upon. Yael demonstrates that we should not shy away from these parts of ourselves because God loves all of us. God loves all of us. The good and the bad, the ugly and the challenging, the achievements and the mistakes, the confidence and the identity crisis, the assurance and the doubts. And I think beyond recognizing that each and every one of us is complex with a full range of typical and non-typical offerings to give, some that might easily be seen as helpful or productive and others that might be a little more unsettling. Besides all of that, we also have a responsibility to recognize that we need to support each other on our journeys for discovery and discernment. To help each other embody these individualities, our quirks, our idiosyncrasies, our annoyances, our shortcomings, our well intentions when they fall flat. Sometimes fully embodying all of ourselves can be so difficult, especially when parts can and often are in contention with one another. The hospitable versus the protective or defensive parts. The welcoming versus the judgmental parts. The caregiving versus the eliminating parts. But as Christians, we have a responsibility to be open and accepting and respectful of others and of ourselves. We have a responsibility to embrace our inner complexities and the complexities of others. We have the responsibility to accept that people should not be limited to certain roles that we are comfortable with them occupying, including ourselves. I think as Christians, we frequently have the responsibility to be left sharks, to be different. And we also have the responsibility to love left sharks when they are different. And we also have the great responsibility of embracing and loving the left shark in all of us. Amen.